G'day and welcome to Property Australia's favourite obsession. My name is Jeremy Cowan and this is a podcast where we get to talk about all things property. And today is another episode that I know you are all going to enjoy because today I got the pleasure of chatting with John Wilson, part-time winemaker and absolute train enthusiast. You can hear it in his voice. He loves the locomotions. And the stories that he's going to tell us today are absolutely classic PAFO because this has got absolutely all our drivers involved. It's got technology. It's got infrastructure. It's all about population and the really important role of government. And of course, it is all underpinned by credit. Today, we're going to start by talking about the disputed territory. And this is what happens when as owners of land, you do not get clear title. This story emphasizes the role of government granted licenses, because when you do not get clear title, you end up with, of course, disputed territory. And once you've got that question of disputed territory, then who has jurisdiction? In this case, it's the story about Serviston, the railway town that sits on the border of South Australia and Victoria. And so this railway town that should have been a bustling metropolis is one that only just survives. And it only survives because it's the Victorian government that takes a punt on the fact that they claim the land and they build a railway station and some housing for the railway workers. See, you couldn't buy land in Serviston because who were you buying it off? Nobody actually knew. And serving as a backdrop to this story is the locomotion industry, the impact that it's had on railway towns and the economy and society in general. As I said, this is a story that is classic for us here on this podcast. It highlights our five drivers, and there are so many lessons for property investors to glean from John's stories. John loves the railways, and his knowledge of railway history is unbelievable. Now, just because John mentions many small South Australian towns today, don't think that the lessons to glean from this are only relevant to those of us who live in South Australia. There are plenty of lessons for property investors to learn from John's tales. So please take your seats, have your tickets ready for the conductor as we give a big PAFO welcome to today's guest. John Wilson, welcome to Property Australia's Favourite Obsession. Good morning, Jeremy. Now, John, when we look at a map, we see all those wiggly lines that nicely define different countries. You know, we tend to see the world as being, you know, divided up, you know, very evenly and, and neatly. But it's not always that way, is it? And I'm thinking there of um, like Israel and Palestine, um, the conflict there on the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Um, we've got, you know, Pakistan and India uh, on the Kashmir border. There's tensions in the Korean Peninsula. But we don't tend to imagine those sort of tensions being um, or applicable within Australia, do we? Well, I don't consider myself an expert on those overseas locations that you mentioned, but certainly in, in Australia, we've divided the continent up in straight lines, more or less, but there are a few odd aberrations. And those sort of aberrations that we're talking about there, I mean, that has created some disputes over the borders um, within Australia, hasn't over time? particularly the South Australian-Victorian border, which has been a source of conflict for many years. It's, um, it's really interesting when we talk about that because, you know, that border was surveyed with the best intentions, but there's, there was a dispute that went on for, you know, many, many years as to where the border actually lay, doesn't it? That's right. 
And and so can you tell us maybe let's start with the border itself. So how did the border um, how did it become into conflict? Why why was it not a defined border and 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 why was there dispute about where it actually laid? King William the Fourth back in the eighteen thirties proclaimed the colony or the province of South Australia as having its eastern border on the 141st. Now, that was surveyed from Victoria about 1847 using the best of equipment and intentions at the time, but it was three miles out, so that there were two borders. There was the border according to King William and there was the border according to the surveyors who set out from Batman's village in Victoria. Now, that border started off, the survey started off at Nelson or near Nelson, which is down near Mount Gambier. And they proceeded north, drawing the line as best they could. But it wasn't until 1867 or thereabouts that the South Australian, sorry, the, the Director General of Posts and Telegraphs, Sir Charles Todd, surveyed it using the telegraph line and found that it was definitely out by about three kilometres at that point. So that became known as the disputed territory. So South Australia claimed it, but Victoria also claimed it. And it wasn't resolved until about 1908, which is when we were well into Federation. And it was resolved in favour of Victoria. But there are still some who say that it should have been in South Australia. Hmm. And that's... I mean, th that error that occurred, I mean, we're, we're talking um, an era where they're trying to survey, you know, with horse and cart and very crude or rudimentary uh, technology to do so, aren't we? Um, yes. In the midst of um, numerous uh, droughts as well, which affected their, the, you know, their party's abilities to, um, you know, to, to actually undertake that survey. Well, it gets funnier than that. There's a point where the... Victorian and South Australian border meets the South Australian and New, Z New South Wales border at the River Murray, uh -huh. where they don't know where some of the land is belonging. They haven't resolved that. Still? Still. Wow. It's about two kilometres of the River Murray where the, the joint join, where it all joins up. Now, the interesting... Well, are you trying to say they used a big fat texter when they drew the border at that point, are you, that... No one quite knows where it actually is. Well, that's right, because there was never a dispute between South Australia and New South Wales regarding the border. And in fact, New South Wales could have pursued that little strip of land, but they didn't. So South Australia owns that, that strip. So if you look at a map, you'll see that if you follow the New South Wales-South Australian border down from the north, it's not a straight line down to the sea. Mm. It's got a kink in it at the River Murray. Yeah, okay. I'd noticed that on a map, but I'd never... But they've never, never resolved that little strip in between. And so this is a really interesting point, though, John, because can I um, extrapolate to say that they haven't bothered to determine who owns that piece of land because it doesn't have enough um, a geographical significance, whereas the site at Serviston, which we're going to get onto, is a very important uh, junction um, for both commerce um, and, of course, the rail line that runs there. That's right. 
And I think that applies also to the New South Wales border because at the time it was perceived as bad land. But it's interesting that it was pretty close to some of the most valuable land in the country. Yeah, yes. Broken Hill. Yeah, yeah. So, John, the disputed territory really was about who owned that piece of land. And, of course, that brings up the important question of jurisdiction. Who actually had jurisdiction over that land? And and that was continually disputed until it was resolved in 1908, wasn't it? That's right. And so at Serviston in particular, so Serviston being on the South Australian and and Victorian border, um, this is very important because we had a town, a railway town, uh, or the need for a railway town to to be there, um, but we didn't know who owned the land and consequently that had a major impact on the development or lack thereof of Serviston as a town. That's right. Now... In the 19th century, and in fact well into the 20th century, the various state railway operations went as far as the border. And so that you had the case of Albury on the New South Wales-Victorian border, where you not only changed engines, but you changed trains because the gauge was different. Mm. Now, if we go back to the Broken Hill example, we had Coburn, which was the end of the line from South Australia and from Coburn into Broken Hill was a distance of about 35 miles or 50 kilometres or thereabouts. Now, the South Australian engines did not proceed beyond the border. So the Broken Hill Express proceeded as far as Coburn. They took off the engines at Coburn and then they hooked up the engines from the Silverton Tramway and took it into Broken Hill. Now, the same applied to the New South, sorry, the Victorian and South Australian border. You had to have a station on the border to change the engines. And in the 19th century, you also had to have a customs depot. So they had to have a border station, but they didn't know where the border was. And so, in their wisdom, they put the border station in the middle of the disputed territory. (laughs) And then they sorted out the dispute afterwards. And there was a, a deal whereby... If it turned out that South Australia was going to be the land that the Serviston station was in, then the South Australians would pay the Victorians for the difference and vice versa. And in fact, when it was all said and done, South Australia reneged on the deal and didn't pay the money. (laughs) Now, the other thing is that the railways needed locomotive depots Steam locomotives could only go about 150 or 200 miles before they had to be serviced. So they had to be taken off and so it was not just a matter of taking them off at the border. You needed a a facility for coaling and water and cleaning out the ash and a general facility for locomotive crews to... They'd done their eight hours and so they had to rest and so you had to have barracks. So you had to have a town. So the Victorian government established... Serviston with the intention that it was a railway town but it was more than that because it had to have a customs facility and there had to be schools and other government facilities. So Serviston became quite a a large community but it all existed in the middle of a disputed territory so that there was no pub because you didn't know which which state was or colony was responsible for the, the pub or licensing. And with that too, John, there was um, 
so there was a school at Serviston? Yes. Um, and there were some, obviously, uh, there were some buildings and, and houses, etc. But Serviston never developed um, like some of the other surrounding towns did it, like Neil and Caniver and even maybe Bordertown as well. Well, there was no permanency to it because you didn't know which state was going to be running it. But they had a brothel. <laughs> well, that's important. They got their priorities right. But therein lies, I guess, one of the, you know, one of the um, major points that our podcast is really about. I mean, we always look at the five drivers, and and this whole story is, is is very much driven by our drivers of, um, you know, technology and infrastructure and population, um, government and credit, and and that 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 point about government is that when you don't have certainty of tenure or, um, you know, when you own an asset or a piece of land or whatever it may be and you don't know absolutely that you own it, then that will impact both the desirability of that um, particular asset as well as the price that someone will pay for it, won't it? Yes, well, you couldn't actually buy land in Serviston because you didn't know which government you were buying it off of. So that there was... The, the buildings were owned by the railways or the government or the Victorian government because they had to have some sort of facilities. But, yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because then when you, when you compare that to, um, say, Caniva, um, you know, that was a very much a, a, yes. a big, thriving town, wasn't it? And really serviced and had all the uh, natural um, locational advantages to actually be the largest town in that area, didn't it, because of the fact that you had the border crossing there? Well, yes and no, because you had Caniver and Bordertown, which were developing ahead of Serviston, and even when Serviston was established, Caniver and Bordertown became the centres of commerce. But the interesting thing was that the railway station building that they built at Serviston was an utter mansion, Oh, it's a beautiful... Do you want to describe the building? Because it is a it is a beautiful building, isn't it? Yes. It's got a basement and it's got an upper level. And the upper level was where the refreshment room manager lived. And the larger part of the building on the platform level is where the old refreshment rooms were. And it's interesting that because the town never had a pub, the railway refreshment rooms became the town's pub. And that, con- that continued until about 1954, I think. Right. And it's made out of red brick from Horsham. And it, it's, it's a beautiful building. And, but it sits out in the middle of a nowhere. It, it is amazing, isn't it, to see? I mean, there's beautiful photos of it, of this beautiful red brick um, you know, train station, massive train station that is almost in fields of nothing. Yes, and it had to provide accommodation for the customs. And the other interesting thing was that when it was first built, it would house the Victorian Railway staff in one end and the South Australian Railway staff in the other end. With the disputed border being in the middle of the uh, of the Serviston? Well, the, the, there were two disputed borders. There was the one that the South Australians said was their border and there was the one that the Victorians said was their border... And the irony of it is that the disputed border never ran through the middle of the station building. (laughs) And you couldn't buy a ticket from Melbourne to Adelaide other than if you bought it on the Intercolonial Express. So if you weren't travelling on the Express, you had to get a ticket from Melbourne 
to Serviston. And then at Serviston, you'd have to go across the corridor to the South Australian Railway's ticket window. There were three ticket windows, actually, on the South Australian side. And you'd have to buy a ticket from Serviston to Adelaide, for example. And the, there was no connection other than the Intercolonial Express. So if you weren't travelling on the Express, you would lob at Serviston at 11 o'clock at night, but the train to Adelaide wouldn't leave until about 11 o'clock the next morning. And there were no hotels. So it was a bit awkward because people got stuck there and had to spend the night at Serviston out in the open. It's unbelievable when you put it like that, isn't it, that, that not only is the border disputed, but we can't even organise the, the trains to connect. Um, and, you know, you've got passengers sitting there for half a day without accommodation. Yes. It, each, co- each colony was obsessed with providing a service within its own colony, but there was no attempt to coordinate the travel. Now, let's talk about the Intercolonial Express. Now, the various colonies were fiercely protective and there was a, the Victorian government had a protectionist policy, so they put tariffs on everything and they didn't really want to have a, a direct rail connection or some of them didn't want a rail connection to Adelaide, but the problem was the mails, the intercolonial mails and They came from England and it was important commercially to get the mails ahead of New South Wales because if they could then do their business and they had a day's advantage and they could reply back to London. So it suited them to have a mail train running between Adelaide and Melbourne. And so that was the reason for the Intercolonial Express. That was the reason for the railway connecting up between Adelaide and Melbourne in 1887. I find that point really, really interesting, John, because, um, you know, when we were talking before, it, it I could understand why Victoria wanted the railway to go to the border, but I found it difficult to understand why South Australia would want to go to the border as such. And previously, in a previous episode, episode 18, um, which we titled Gander, the airport that gave birth to a town, I, I spoke to a gentleman by the name of Jack Pinson, and he spoke about the history of Gander and Gander Airport was established again because of the the mails, um, you know, pre um, World War One, and uh, you know I thought it was because of the transatlantic um, flights, which is eventually what it developed into. But the real push again was the mail, and again we we see the same thing here that you know today it's all about you know um, you know uh, mobile phones and and the internet. And yet back in the day, it's another example of being able to put ourselves back in the time frame of, you know, what was happening, that the mail was the communication method of the day that was so important that it is, you know, that that was the impetus to actually connect the railway from um, South Australia to Victoria. Yes, and it wasn't the people so much, it was the mail. And what happened was that the mail ships would come to South Australia first because they'd come across from... Western Australia, and there was a threat to bypass South Australia, and so it was in South Australia's interest to construct the railway because that guaranteed that the mail ships would arrive at Glenelg or Largs Bay, as was the case later, and South Australia would have its mail a day before Melbourne and two days before Sydney. So that South Australia was in in a good position geographically, But Melbourne wanted its mail sooner, so South Australia agreed 
to construct the, the intercolonial railway and have the intercolonial express. And they had mail sorting vans on the train and so that the bags of mail were unloaded at this stage at Largs Bay and that the mail vans were shunted onto the jetty at Largs Bay. The mail bags were emptied out and they had six sorters on board the train and they were Victorian sorters who would sort the mail as it was going through the night and it would be already sorted when they got to Spencer Street Station in the morning. And there was a special tunnel under the road where it went into the post office and, and it would all be sorted according to suburbs and country towns all ready to go out. And the, the situation with, with Serviston was that they changed the mail sorters over at Serviston because there was one group of sorters who went from Largs Bay to Serviston and another group went from Serviston, did the mail from Serviston through to Spencer Street. Now, there wasn't this need. that They didn't particularly care about passengers. So that the, the passengers who weren't booked on the Intercolonial Express would be required, if, if they were going, say, from Melbourne to Adelaide and they weren't booked on the Express, they'd have to buy a ticket from Melbourne to Serviston. And when they got to Serviston, they'd have to buy a ticket from Serviston to Adelaide. And there was no communication or corresponding rail movements so that they would arrive at Serviston at 11 o'clock at night and the train to Adelaide wouldn't depart until about 11 o'clock the next morning. There was no coordination for passengers. It does seem um, uh, amazing that that could be the case, isn't it? That yes. you've got this massive rail network and, um, uh, and you know, it's all about the mail and, and really the, the connect or connectivity really isn't... And even passenger, you know, it's not being a passenger-driven, um, um, you know, service that we tend to think about those sort of services as being... Um, um, passenger driven but uh, you know throughout the colonies you know there was the mail that obviously was a big driver of um, the development of the rail network but agriculture was the other big development wasn't it that, that really drove um, the development of the rail network yes well the it's interesting that if you look at the map if you look at Sydney and Melbourne you can see how the railway network was developed feeding into the capital so that the the agricultural produce in Victoria went to Melbourne or Geelong. And in New South Wales, it went to Sydney or Wollongong or Newcastle, but there was no decentralisation. But there was in Queensland and in South Australia, the railway system was developed to get the wheat down to the sea where it would be picked up by the catchers and possibly brought to Adelaide. But in many cases, it went direct to overseas. And the problem was in South Australia, they built their railways on the cheap, whereas in Victoria, they built their railways to a very high standard of engineering and construction compatible with what happened in England. And they discovered that they couldn't afford that level of construction, and particularly in Queensland, they had to have cheaper railways. The, the philosophy was cheap railways are better than none at all. So they developed a narrow gauge, three foot six, and to this day, the three foot six has remained the standard in Queensland. But South Australia went on this narrow gauge excursion and it became a bit of a thorn in their side. And we had two railway gauges we were operating with numerous break of gauge stations along the way. And getting back to Serviston, the first 
railway in that area was the three foot six gauge line from Kingston to Narracourt, which was subsequently extended up to Bordertown. And there was a branch line into Victoria at Serviston. Now, Serviston was the first break of gauge station in Victoria. Oddly enough, it had only lasted for about two or three years and that narrow gauge section became defunct. Can we pick up this idea about the difference of gauges? Because um, I always think it's really interesting how you know Australia's power is divided constitutionally between the states and the Commonwealth. And you know, as you said before, that um, uh, you know the states couldn't even work out how to uh, efficiently connect passengers at the service and station. Um, that they they were using different gauges um, for. Um, you know, for the trains themselves. That do you want to talk a little bit about the history of um, you know the original you know um, Stevenson's gauge and how that was devised and and then why there are two different gauges that are used? Well, there were three actually. And coming back to Stevenson, Stevenson built his trains and railways to the four foot eight and a half inch gauge, which is now called Stevenson's standard gauge because that was the size of the back end of a horse that they used on the pit ponies in the mines. And that was the science they used. Now, the Irish, oddly enough, we tend to rubbish the Irish, but the Irish had it worked out that the four foot eight and a half was not the best gauge, and so they set about determining what was the best gauge. And Stevenson himself had indicated some years after he built his rocket that he thought that a wider gauge was better. And the, the Irish looked at this and they averaged out all the railway gauges in the world at that stage and came up with five foot three, which was the Irish broad gauge. And so the Irish broad gauge was in fact the better gauge and it still is the better gauge. But in time it became evident in England that they had to consolidate to one gauge and it was cheaper to push a rail in than to push the rail out. So the four foot eight and a half gauge was, became the standard gauge now, in Australia, we were directed by the Colonial Office in about 1847 or 1848 to use the English standard gauge, the four foot eight and a half. But Sydney Railway Company had a, an Irish engineer called um, Wentworth Shields, and he said that they needed to go to the five foot three. Now, approval was sought from the Colonial Office and it was agreed that five foot three would be the standard for, South, for all of the Australian railways. So South Australia and Victoria proceeded to build five foot three gauge and ordered their rolling stock from England. Meanwhile, there was a change of engineer in, in, in New South Wales and he sought approval to go back to four foot eight and a half. But in the meantime, the ships were taking four months to get from London to Australia with the various communications from the colonial office. And by the time this got through to, to London, Victoria and South Australia had already ordered their in, inventory. And so South Australia had five foot three and Victoria had five foot three and New South Wales started off with four foot eight and a half. Now that was bad enough, but in the 1860s, the, there was this craze for the cheap and narrow gauge and Queensland departed on its three foot six. And New Zealand and Tasmania also went into the narrow gauge. 
They'd originally started off with the five foot three and changed the whole system over to the three foot six. But South Australia, having dabbled with the three foot six, opted to run a two gauge system, and that was our undoing. Well, that obviously is going to cause enormous inefficiencies um, throughout the state, isn't it? That you can't, if you've got a rail network that um, doesn't run on the, 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 well, it's not compatible, then that's going to cause all sorts of dramas yes, along the way. Yes, and this happened when Broken Hill was on the rise. And the line to Broken Hill became the, the sore testing point for this. And it meant that with a narrow-gauge railway to Broken Hill, the ores and the concentrates went down to Port Pirie and not to Adelaide, so that it was the reason that Port Pirie became a major rural town and it was also the reason that Port Pirie has got a lead smelter at the end of its main street and to this day there's lead in the environment which is a major problem for Port Pirie. Mm. It could have been worse. They could have put a smelter at Morgan on the River Murray which they proposed to do. Oh, wow. That would have been disastrous. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, my understanding too, um, John, that the United States didn't suffer from these sort of inefficiencies because after the Civil War they basically made the decision on the gauge and, and standardised it throughout the US. Yes. There's but, been a failure to address this problem all along and... They, it could have been resolved in the 1890s when we moved towards federation, but the, the, they were unable to achieve agreement between the colonies. And so when we had federation, we had a, a, an agreement to work towards a national defence system and a post office system and a legal system, but they couldn't sort out the railways. So that we ended up with, with Australia going into the... Federation with the colonies and states having their own railway systems and gauges and it's progressed from there as a disaster. But it's not just the rail gauge that causes the problem, is it? There's also this idea of the, the safe working systems or the, the signalling that occurs um, on the rail network is different between states. Yes, and the, that's not the only thing. It was administration which was wrong and the situation with safe working is, to use an example, in the 1830s they, sorry, in the 1930s they had a system of safe working called electric staff and they had staff exchanges along the lines so that the trains could change the staff at speed. But South Australia had a system... So do you just want to explain what that actually means, uh, yes, changing the, the staff at speed? Yeah. Yes, the, the electric staff was a, a small rod about a foot long which was engraved with the name of the two stations so that to use the example of Serviston and Bordertown, there would have been a, a staff branded Serviston to Bordertown and there would have been about 50 of these staffs in the machine and there could only be one staff out of the machine system at one time, so that the, there was a machine at Serviston which was engra engraved with these staffs for Bordertown and Serviston. There was a similar machine at Bordertown, and you could only have one rod out of the machine at one time, and that give, was giving you the safe working, so that the driver who had that staff knew that he had the track. Now... When he got to Bordertown, the, machine, the, the staff would be put into the machine and that would unlock the machine at Serviston and Bordertown so that 
there could be another train going then the other way or following him. But that was a very slow process because it meant the train had to stop at each staff station to change the staff. So they developed a system whereby these staffs could be changed at speed. And that had the problem that it meant that you had to have a station master on in the middle of the night to withdraw the staff from the machine and, and give it to the driver as he went through. And there would be the, the one from the previous section which would be dropped off. So they developed these staff exchanging machines which were, were very intricate. They, they were on the line side and they, they changed the staff over at speed. But in the South Australian situation, they were built on the one side of the railway and on the Victorian side, they were on the other side of the railway. And so that they couldn't have the same locomotive go through because it was equipped in the Victorian side to throw it off at one side and on the South Australian side at the other. It's amazing, isn't it? It's yes. amazing how, you know, again, we can see that the role that government can actually play where, um, you know, when you've got a federal system or, or, or a system that the states all agree to can have a huge impact on productivity um, and the way in which those sort of, you know, services and, and, and train systems can actually work. John, could you describe what did a rail town look like uh, in the day and um, the commercial activity that would surround it? There was no single pattern. I think each developed in a hodgepodge sort of a way according to its own needs. And <clears throat> it depended on whether it was a break of gauge station. Now, one of the most interesting break of gauge stations was Maree in South Australia. Now, that was built because they standardised the railway from Port Augusta to Maree. So you had a situation where it existed for no purpose other than changing trains and shifting goods from one, one location to the other. Now, in the case of Maree, they had plenty of space because they were out in the, the nowhere. And they employed about 600 people, which was in the 50s, 1950s. And they had to service the GAN passenger train and so they had to provide water and they had to provide coal for the steam locomotives and in the case of Maree they had a pub which was the, the centre of operations of the town um, but it, it was interesting that Maree also had to provide for transport up the Birdsville track and up the Udnadat track so that in Maree there was a half a town called Gan Town which was where the Afghan Cameleers were based. And in time, the, the Afghan Cameleers had to get out because the motor transport took over. And there was the legendary Tom Cruise who ran the, the Birdsville track mail truck. And so another railway town of significance was Tarawi. Now, Tarawi, like Maori, existed for no other purpose than changing trains and shifting the goods from one to the other and it became a town with about almost a thousand people because they had to be the rail workers had to be serviced so they had to have two pubs and they had the school and, and there was quite a community and in Tarawi it, it all came to an end in 1970 it had been going for 90 years changing trains and in 1970 they pushed the rail the broad gauge through to Peterborough and it all collapsed and it's a sad situation to go to Tarawi now because there are all these houses that, that people live in them because they're cheap and it's, but it's a town without a soul. Mm, well, there's no commerce, there's no 
industry is there that that occurs at Torawi now? And it is amazing, as you said, that that a town can thrive for 90 years off technological inefficiencies. Yes. And that in itself is quite a – well, that just shows the power of, um, you know, what we're talking about here, doesn't it? Yes. It became too – it was a topic that the governments in South Australia couldn't address because there were people in Torawi who voted and – they had to. They had a reason to keep them going. And so therein lies again the whole argument of the vested interest, doesn't it? Yes. That's, it's, it's, it's exactly the same as um, I in a previous episode um, connecting the world. I, I spoke with Dr. Sal Macogliano and and we were talking about the canal systems in the US and the impact that they had on commerce and um, you know agriculture and etc and even the population movements um, and it's quite amazing that you know it's the same story that we're hearing here and yeah, different continent different technology but it's the same underlying story isn't it and and I know with Sal that he spoke about how um, you know there was a lot of skullduggery and shenanigans that occurred um, by landowners and speculators to try and um, ensure that the canals went through their properties or were in very close proximity to properties and uh, or land that they owned. And you know, there was a lot of speculation as to that went out where people bought land um, trying to front run um, where these large infrastructure projects would be laid. And I would imagine that it would be exactly the same given that we're talking about people um, and you know, human nature, that we would have seen exactly the same thing here um, in, in South Australia, John. Yes, the, the railways were the broad ga- broadband of the 19th century. And <clears throat> one of the major centres of railway activity was Peterborough in South Australia. And the Peterborough was set up as a private town because it was anticipated that the railways would junction there, which they did. But the government had originally proposed that Lancelot would be the the town where the railway ended. And it was only a few weeks ago that we met a chap who admitted that he had land at Lancelot because his great-grandfather bought land at Lancelot because that was going to be the the junction and he's he's not been able to sell it because nobody wants it. (laughs) (laughs) That whole demand and supply thing there, the locational advantage or disadvantage that a piece of land has... Uh, is just so important and, and therein lies the lesson for, um, you know, property investors that, um, you know, that the, the, the value of property is derived from its locational advantage. Yes. Well, there was another, another town called Ashford, Ashford, not Ashford where the, down at, on the Anzac Highway, but it was near Blythe in the mid-north and this was going to be the junction station of the railway to Clare. But to build a railway from... Ashford to Clare would have required a, a rack railway or a funicular railway because it was so steep. And so... Sorry, sorry what does that... Can you just clarify? What does what, what does that mean, John? What, what, what do you mean by a rack railway? Yes, well, a conventional railway is a very efficient way of traction or propulsion if it's on the level. But trains don't like inclines, and so as you get steeper and steeper... It becomes a ridiculous stage where the engine is capable of pulling itself up the hill but hasn't got any oomph left to pull anything else up the hill. And it requires the the wheels to get a grip on the rails so that if you get a bit of grass on the track or it's a misty morning and the track gets a bit of moisture, the, the rails 
that the wheels won't get enough grip on the, or traction on the rails. So you've got to find a better way. And in the 1890s, they developed a system called a rack railway, which is uh, this is in existence now in Mount Lyle in Tasmania as a tourist railway. But it, when it was built, they had to go up a one in 14, and so they had a cog in the, in the engine which engaged a cog-like structure on the rails. And so the cog would engage in the rails and it would pull the engine up the hill. And it's quite, it's quite an experience to travel on that railway. You can, it's a tourist railway now. And when they get on the rack, you can feel it pulling. And the, the engine is working on the, the rack. And it's, not, it's a very slow way of getting up the hill, but it, it does it. But it does the job. It's the, um, I think I can, I think I can, isn't it? The uh, little red caboose. Yes, the little red engine that could. Yeah, okay. Sorry, you. I, I derailed you there about, um, you're starting to talk about um, a- Ashford. Yes, well, Ashford was proposed as the junction station of the narrow gauge line from Blythe up to Clare, but it never happened. And it's interesting that Clare was one of those places in South Australia which never had a railway in the 19th century, but it developed as the centre of commerce because it was so rich and agriculturally endowed and the, the problem was that it was totally uneconomical to build a railway to Clare. And when they did build the railway to Clare, it was done so that Sir Richard Butler would get the votes. But it was a, a railway which was a total loss for that reason, that the engine could pull itself up the hill, but it didn't have much oomph left to pull anything else up. So that it was a very expensive railway to operate. And now it's a beautiful walking and bike track, isn't it? Yes. Well, that's the Riesling Trail, which is a monument to railway construction where it shouldn't have been a parliamentary privilege that allowed Sir Richard Butler to get the railway built into his electorate so that his son could get a a seat in Parliament. His son was Richard Leighton Butler, who was the member for Wurura, which was in that area. Ah, very interesting. And it doesn't uh, happen to cross um, your winery up that way, does it, John? No, it's not. Actually, the, the Wilson winery is... At Polish Hill River, which is on the other side of the, the Clare Valley, which was is closer over to the broad gauge line that went to Barra. Okay, okay. And when we certainly think of South Australia, you know, wheat and trains go hand in hand, don't they? That um, you know, there was a lot of farmers that wanted to buy land, and the government wanted to sell them land. But they could only do that, or the or the, the farmers would only be willing to buy the land um, if there was a form or a mode of transportation that they could get their product to uh, to market, wasn't there? And and that was a big push for many of the um, uh, many of the lines, the rail lines that uh, that were laid. Yes, well, it was a, another case of the politicians getting it wrong, and the situation in the 1860s was that the the government made its money by selling crown land to the farmers and the farmers clamoured for more land and the, the government was doing more surveying. They, they couldn't sell the land until they'd surveyed it and they couldn't sell it until they had water available because the, the farmers needed wells for their stock routes and the farmers needed transport to get their wheat economically to the the part the, to the ports and so the farmers clamoured for more land and the government subdivided more land 
But the further out from Adelaide they went, the, the rainfall dropped off. And in 1865, the government had the Surveyor-General, George Goiter, survey the land and recommend what was economically viable for the, the grain growing. And he drew his line on the map, which was known as Goiter's Line of Rainfall. And he said that beyond that line, you could not economically grow grain. And he was right. But there had been a series of good seasons with high rainfall and the, the government and the would-be farmers declared Goida was wrong. And this was where Lancelot was one of the places that was drawn up by the government. And it was outside of Goida's line. And so that in 1880-1881 there was a terrible drought. But it wasn't terrible because it had all come before. But the farmers walked off the land that they bought. And if you go up there nowadays, you'll see the ruins of the would-be farmers. And there are towns like Johnburg and Amyton, which never happened. They were surveyed as the centre of these wheat districts and they, they never happened. I found that really uh, quite striking when um, when I was looking over one of your books that you'd written. I, I can't recall the name of which one it was. but It was probably Bob's Railway, the, the story of Bob the Railway Dog. Okay, because there's, there's a fantastic picture there of South Australia with Goiter's line marked and the rail network. And it's very, very clear that, um, you know, that all the rail network that uh, was laid was uh, south of Goiter's line. Well, there's a lot of it laid beyond Goiter's line. And these were, the classic example was the, ra the railway to Government Gums, which was renamed Farina because Farina was going to be the, the, the wheat bowl of the southern hemisphere. And it went through Willocra, which was the Willocra Plains. And that was the centre of, going to be the centre of a great grain growing area. And it never happened because the rain didn't come. The rain didn't come. And there again is, you know, there, there are such, I really appreciate your, um, uh, your time, John, because these stories are all about, you know, what our podcast is about. It's, it's about the, the, the difference in the productive nature of land um, and, you know, both naturally and, you know, what we as humans can do to increase productivity of the land. It's, it's, um, it, it, they really, they're just such fantastic examples that, you know, as all listeners and investors can, can learn a lot from. Um, I wanted to ask you too, John, that in the 1950s and 60s, it was that, it was the heyday for, um, uh, for air travel, you know, it was the era where pilots and stewardess were were rock stars. Um, did rail ever have an era like that? Yes, it was the 1920s, and it was the great era of rail transport. And it we had a little touch of it in South Australia. William Webb was employed to sort out the South Australian railway system. The South Australian railways had been in a terrible mess since the 1880s, mainly because it was being run by politicians who didn't know how to run a railway system. And there was a need to modernise the South Australian railways. And so the, the government of Henry Barwell, who was the Premier in the early 1920s, set about doing this and they employed a Yankee called William A. Webb. And he was a remarkable visionary, but he, he didn't know how to stop spending money. And he was responsible for the magnificent Adelaide Railway Station, which was probably bigger than Adelaide required. 
but it was built on the standard of the great the Grand Central Station in New York. It was and it's a pity that you can't actually see the, the railway station these days because it's been had multi-storey office blocks and hotels built around it. But if you go into the main concourse, you get a bit of an idea of the grandiosity of it all. And he developed a refreshment room service with a magnificent dining room. And in 1928, he put in a dining car on the Adelaide to Melbourne Express. It was a Pullman steel car. It weighed 78 tonnes and it's down in the National Railway Museum at Port Adelaide. It was symbolic of the era. The Pullman Company built these heavyweight steel cars because they, they would survive in a crash. They were, they were muscle carriages, but at 78 tonnes, it took up the loading of two passenger cars so that the big mountain-type engines that he brought out to pull the Melbourne Express were struggling to pull this lot over the Mount Lofty Ranges. And Webb sincerely believed that there needed to be a total Pullman train running between Adelaide and Melbourne, so that it was going to be all of these Pullman steel cars. But he didn't have any idea how it was going to pull, how he was going to pull it over the mountains. There was a belief that he was going to put in place a system of electric traction. That was the only way that he could have got the express over the mountain. But the Great Depression came along and it all fell in a heap, and the great dining cars were taken off the express in the 1930s. Now, in the, I had the pleasure of many times of travelling in the dining car and eating it, and it was a magnificent experience, and it was just a touch of the, the grandeur of the, the great rail era of the 1920s in the, 19, in the United States that we had a taste of. And... In the United States, they ran into that same problem with the steel, heavyweight steel cars. They couldn't afford to run them because they were just too heavy. And so the 1930s became the era of the stainless steel and the aluminium lightweight passenger cars. But it was all over in the United States by then. The, the, the American transport had gone over to the motor car and the, the aeroplane. And we've followed that since. It's a pity because they are beautiful plush um, carriages, aren't they, that you're talking about, those Pullman uh, carts? Yes. Now, we're in the situation where we've got the, the... There was a lot of rolling stock built in the nine, late 1960s for the Trans-Australian Express and the Indian Pacific. Now, the Indian Pacific is presently not running, and I think it's going to be a long time before we can get from Sydney to Perth without going through border restrictions... And the GAN is struggling. Now, the, the situation with the GAN and the Indian Pacific is that those carriages are getting very old. Now, they're going to have to... They're due for replacement. Now, they would... The, uh, to use the example of the Overland, the Overland cars presently in service were built in the, in the 1950s. Now, they're 70 years old. Mm, now, yeah. the Australian National Railways should have upgraded and reinvested in the 1980s and 1990s, but they didn't. Now, what's going to happen, I don't know, but in 10 years' time, there's got to be an addressing of this ageing passenger rolling stock in Australia. Mm. And that's one of the issues that I'm on, on about at the moment. We've got a South Australian election coming up in the next few months. Now, there's been very little said about the overland. It's, it's a, an express train which has languished... It's been subject to many injustices over the, the years and it's 
if nothing's done, I fear that it's going to just fade away. And so I'm on a bit of a campaign in South Australia to get this before the Parliament. Now, the problem is that South Australia and Victoria have historically been at loggerheads and squabbling over the interstate rail service. And we come back to Serviston. Which it all comes back to Serviston, doesn't it, John? It all it, comes back to Serviston because it was the coming together of two colonies. And I say that Serviston is a shrine of federation because Sir John Downer, who was the Premier of South Australia, and Sir James Service, who was the Premier of Victoria, were able to put all this squabbling up behind them and were able to sit down and sort out this mess and get the, the intercolonial railway and service and station happening. And in fact, there's a historical precedent that in the 1890s, they couldn't agree on the Saturday running of an express. So they had a, a get together at the Serviston railway station and they sorted it all out. And I proposed some a couple of years ago when we were in the situation where the South Australian government had withdrawn funding for the Overland Express to have a, a get-together at the Serviston Railway Station. Now, it didn't happen quite as I'd imagined it because the COVID came along, but Mark, Mark Radford, who was the mayor of the rural city of Horsham, put on a Serviston Summit, which is the, the online Zoom meeting. It was gimmicky, but it worked because the Victorian government came good with three years of funding for the Overland. And that's where we are at the moment. Now, the outcome of the Serviston Summit was that there would be an exploration of tourism facilities so that you could have packages where passengers would travel on the overland from Melbourne to Murray Bridge. And they'd be in Murray Bridge for three days and they'd go up and down the river and they'd go to the Monato Zoo and they'd dine well and have the local produce and then they'd go back on the overland. And vice versa, South Australians could go to Stall and spend three days in the, the Grampians and then come back. And there was going to be USBs and Wi-Fi on the train so that you could take your computer and there'd be upgrading of the, the timetable. Now, when the, the COVID, the first round of the COVID came along, we, the, the Overland didn't run and it happened again on the 3rd of January this year in, 19, in 2021. And we were actually on that train, but we only went as far as Bordertown because... There, would, there had been more COVID in Melbourne and we changed our plans at the last minute. But the Australian Rail Track Corporation, which owns the track now, pulled the carpet on the overland and it departed, normally it departed at 7.30 in the morning to go to Melbourne. Now we needed to get that timetable pruned down a little bit and a bit faster, but the opposite happened. The Australian Rail Track Corporation had sold the path to a freight company so on the Thursday, the Overland still does leave at 6.50 in the morning instead of 7.30. And it takes longer to get to Melbourne. Now, so it, the way things are looking, it's not looking good for the Overland at the moment. And the present operator has not shown any interest in developing these tourism packages and putting Wi-Fi and USB on board and simple things like that. They don't, they're not interested. And so I've suggested to the South Australian Premier, and I believe this is being considered at the moment, that we reconvene the Serviston Summit, but we do it in the flesh and we have a, people from South Australia and Victoria go down to Serviston. We put a chalk line across the floor and we develop a long-term vision and plan for this to happen. 
and it's going to have to address the situation of the rolling stock. Now, Victorian Railways V-Line is presently trialling standard gauge velocity trains in Victoria. Now, it's possible that we may be able to get these standard gauge trains running through to Murray Bridge from Melbourne and use them as the basis of a, a service twice a day. I was going to ask you about that. The you know the development obviously from originally you know we're talking um, you know eighteen fifties eighteen eighties very much the steam era. Um, the you know and there's a lot of problems with those steam engines. You know it takes a lot of upkeep and a lot of engineers to to keep one of those old puffing billies on, on the track. And then you move through into the diesel era where um, you know things got more efficient and, and, and much quicker. And and now it seems to me that um, certainly, you know, uh, Europe and Asia have got a, um, a leaning towards the fast trains. And, you know, what's the opportunity for, you know, those sort of fast train style services in, uh, in Australia? Yeah. So John's just handed me a beautiful sketch of the Serviston... Um, rail station with a magnificent fast train out the front of it. Yes, it was done by Glenn Haddon, who's a, a friend of ours who's an artist, and I said I wanted a concept for the future overland. Now, that's a velocity train, and they're capable of 160 kph, but they're only capable of that if the track is sufficiently upgraded and the safe working has to be upgraded because... Your conventional level crossing protection needs to take into account that these things are moving very fast and so you need longer sections and so that it's not cheap. But the other problem we've got is that the section of railway between Adelaide and Murray Bridge is slow. It's, it's, it was built in the 1870s and 1880s. The story went that the South Australian Premier, who was then Thomas Playford, he's the great-grandfather of the, the later Thomas Playford, directed Henry May, who was the engineer-in-chief, to survey a railway to Mount Barker in 30 miles with a 1 in 33 grade. Now, that was would have meant that there, there was nothing left over for the engine to pull after it pulled itself. It was going to be a three-mile tunnel under Mount Lofty, and May went back to Playford and said it can't be done. And so Playford said, well, we'll give you eight weeks to do another survey and you can have another four and a half miles. And so he, he did a survey which went from eastern suburbs from Rose Park. And if you go down Alexandria Avenue today, you'll see where his railway alignment was because it's a great broad avenue and there was room for the railway up there. I've always wondered about that. And, yeah. and the well-to-do of the eastern suburbs were up in arms and so they put it out through Mile End and Mitcham and Blackwood and that's the line we're stuck with. Now it's got steep curves, it's a, the steepest railway in, in Australia, the curves slow it down and over 130 years since then there have been numerous proposals to run different alternatives. They've talked about putting a great tunnel under the Mount Lofty Ranges to Murray Bridge then there's the 10-mile tunnel and there's another tunnel which is somewhere near Allgate. But nothing's happened. And the, the overland takes up to three hours to get from Adelaide to Murray Bridge. Mm, now, yeah. that's the problem. And what, I'm, what I've suggested in this submission that I've put to the Premier is that 
we actually have a red bus from Adelaide to Murray Bridge. Now, if you go on the aeroplane to Melbourne, you travel in the red bus for an hour to get to Tullamarine. So what I'm suggesting is it's not such an ordeal to have a red bus from Adelaide to Murray Bridge, which will take an hour, which is about the same. I've gone one further than that, and I've suggested that in the eastern suburbs, we have a, an Oban red bus from Tea Tree Plaza down through Clemsig across Burnside and up through Mount Barker, picking up on the way to get to Murray Bridge. And we have a passenger interchange facility, a passenger hub at Murray Bridge. Now, that will pick up people who come from the Riverland and the Barossa Valley. Now, this compares to air because if you look at the time taken to get from your front door to service, sorry, to Spencer Street in Melbourne, it's, com it's competitive with air. And if we can make that train go faster and we can have a, a broad gauge connection from Ararat into Melbourne, which will knock off an hour, you can do Adelaide to Melbourne in seven hours. Now, it takes four hours on the aeroplane by the time you go from the C get into the CBD. If we've got good, comfortable carriages and we've got Wi-Fi and USBs on the train, this is going to compete. And I think for people in Ballarat, this, I mean, if you look at Ballarat or Ararat, if, they, if they're going to travel by plane, they've got to get into the CBD. Thing. Mm. Now, we're in a situation where we've got to address our post-COVID transport arrangements. And with these trains, we can get some degree of social distancing on board. But social distancing on an aeroplane or an interstate bus, is, it's fairyland. Can you tell me, John, with the rail transportation as we see it in Australia at the moment, is the the bulk of the money and the bulk of the use of it would be freight, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be passenger as such? Freight pays the way, yes. Yeah. And that's the problem. And it's this upgrading of interstate rail passenger transport has to have the backing of government and acceptance that it's going to cost taxpayer money to have the infrastructure to do this. And that's where we're at at the moment. They ain't got the message. Well, that's part of the problem, isn't it? That we've got, um, you know, interstate lines, we've got intrastate lines and we've got suburban lines that they're all, um, you know, they're, they're all different networks, aren't they? Well, I think we've got to look at the, the regional centres and I think the regional centres are the, are the key to this because we've got to get away from the high-rise buildings and the, the, intense, the density of population because... I'm a firm believer that we're going to get another round of the, the Delta virus and that we're going to have to learn to live with this disease. And, and decentralisation is the key to it all. So that I see fast rail as being the conduit for developing centres like Ararat, Horsham, Border Town. Yeah, those larger regional centres. And as you said... Bridge, perhaps, two years. Yeah, as you said, they are... Um, sort of in the vortex where those people who reside in those um, those places, you know, you, you don't have the, um, the facility to catch a plane to and from. Well, um, it goes one further than that. If you have fast rail into, say, if you develop Horsham, now people can live in Horsham and if they decide they want to go to Melbourne one day and do business in Melbourne, they can get on the early train to Melbourne and do their business and come back to Horsham and they'll probably get back at about... 10 or, 9, 10 or 11 o'clock in the evening. But the next day, if they want to go to Adelaide, they can jump on a train and go and do a day's business in Adelaide. Now, that's got to be a, 
a big plus. Hmm. Well, it's taking a locational disadvantage, I guess, with some infrastructure and turning it into a locational advantage, isn't it? That's, yes. Uh, that's, um, so maybe there's a message for your readers or listeners to think about Horsham and Ararat and get behind a fast rail. Yeah, so, well, certainly the. I mean, they're you know, certainly making some headway with the idea of the fast rail up the east coast, aren't they, of Australia? Well, I don't know. I think that's turning into a bit of a. It's it's a slow one to happen. I think that the Melbourne to Adelaide corridor is is the one that's going to happen as the example because the the Sydney to Melbourne corridor is is a headache and there are many problems and they had that derailment uh, last year which has put a dent in it and they've got problems with their mud patches under the railway track and it's it's a very difficult engineering thing and whereas the apart from if you take out the Adelaide to Murray Bridge section where I've proposed having my red buses the Adelaide to Melbourne is is quite achievable John, we've covered a lot of subjects today, a lot of topics. Is there anything that you think that we might have skipped over or missed? We've probably skipped over a lot of things, Jeremy. <laughs> but I'm happy to, to have another session if your listeners think that that's what they want or if you want, if you want to Yeah, well, it's such an interesting topic. I mean, it's got such... It's got so many tentacles, this one. Yes. Um, and, and so many... Um, you know, th- there's just so many implications and so many lessons um, for us. But... Um, before I sort of give a little wrap up, um, John, if listeners want to know more uh, about rail in a historical context, um, you know where where should they go? You've written some classic books. Um, you're involved in some um, uh, some not for profits. Do you want to give a little bit of a plug for some of those? Yes. Well, I'd like to give you my my website address, which is www.sarlinesbooks. S A R L I N E S books. That's one word. And Sarlines, the origin of the Sarlines is the lines of the South Australian Railways, S-A-R lines, and it's .com.au at the end. Now, I've got a, a facility on the website where I have synopses of my books so that you get the each book condensed down to about eight pages, so it gives you the key points. And I've mentioned the National Railway Museum. Now, I've been a long-time supporter of the National Railway Museum and they've been a long-time supporter of me and my books. And I'd like to acknowledge the late Tim Fisher, who was a great advocate for rail, and he declared that the National Railway Museum is the best multi-gauge railway museum in the world. And I think it is, but I, haven't, I can't say that I've been to the others, so I don't know. But I'd like to tell you about my next little project. Now... So can I just jump in there too with the National Rail? I've got to say that um, um, my boys are now teenagers, but as um, little ones, we used to often go down there, and it is a great uh, it is a great museum, and it's fantastic that you know you're able to you know touch and feel and experience you know so many different parts of um, you know rail history, uh, and I'd thoroughly recommend it for for those who are about in South Australia. Yes, and I think the other thing that needs to be said is it's totally voluntary, voluntary yeah. self-funded organisation with people who are passionate about rail like myself. Mm. And the other, I was telling about the other famous Australian, who's called Bob. Tell us about Bob. Bob was the railway dog. And in the whole world, there was no one, no dog like Bob. Now, Bob was born about 1884... And he was, he, he was a train enthusiast. 
And he travelled the trains in South Australia and into Victoria and New South Wales. And he had a collar which was inscribed, Stop me, lot, stop me not, but let me jog, for I am Bob the driver's dog. And that collar is in the National Railway Museum at Port Adelaide. And I th there was a need for a good history about Bob, so I, in, a couple of years ago I did a book called Bob's Railway, and it's subtitled Turbulent South Australian Political History and a Remarkable Railway Dog. So we now know a lot about Bob, but we didn't, and I was able to put it all together. But I've gone one step further than that. We, we believe that there needs to be a television program or a movie about Bob, so I'm reworking the Bob history, hopefully with the intention that we can get a movie producer to pick it up, and I'm still talking to the movie industry, but it's been a slow and long process. But we're doing a book which will be 20 chapters, and each chapter will be a, a, an episode of the Bob movie, so to speak, which will be called The Amazing Adventures of the Railway Bob. Now, I'm not looking to make any money out of this, but I'm hoping that we can get it set up so that the profits from the movie and the television series can go to the Heritage Railway operations in South Australia so that we can have a, a fund that builds up the National Railway Museum to be something truly magnificent in Australia. And, yeah... I definitely, uh, yeah, I mean, that's fantastic to put that out with our listeners and hopefully there might be someone out there who might be able to help you in that project or um, give you some um, some help or advice because, I mean, again, I'm a big believer, you know, those who, you know, help themselves are the ones who get help. So um, it's, you know, great. I think that from, as you said, the National Rail Museum, Museum is, a, is a volunteer organisation and you're looking at um, self-funding or self-sustaining fundability. I think that's a, a great step to take. So, yeah, congratulations there, John. I just one thing, one little story that you told me that I didn't that we didn't cover is, um, which again I think is just so pertinent with regards to not just rail history, but the whole concept that you know we love to use the term same same but different that. History, as it doesn't repeat as such, but it does rhyme. It's the same characters; um, they've just got different names. It's the same behaviours; it just happens in a different context. You know, you spoke about how the rail, um, uh, the rail industry through the twenties, you know, became the pinnacle. But then, through by the thirties, that technology had already been overcome by um, uh, the automobile and, of course, air flight and. I think that there's a great story that I'm just wondering whether we can we can finish on um, about CC Kingston and um, what happened between South Australia and Victoria with regards to um, trying to control the freight of wheat. Well, CC Kingston was one of our most colourful politicians. You either hated him or you loved him. And I've got a section in the book on Bob's Railway where I've psychoanalysed Kingston and declared that he was a pathological narcissist and there was an incident where this Kingston directed the South Australian Railways in about 1891 to offer a reduced rate for the cartage of wheat over the South Australian Railways so that he was setting in place a, tr a trade war between the, the railways at the, the border districts to, to get their business. Now Joseph Henry Smith was the 
chairman of the commissioners of the railways, and Joseph Henry Smith and C.C. Kingston were enemies. There was no doubt about it. And there was an uproar amongst the, the South Australian wheat farmers because they didn't get the same benefit. And it caused a ruckus in Parliament and there was a, an inquiry at which C.C. Kingston's evidence was against the evidence of Joseph Henry Smith, not surprisingly. Mm. And Richard Baker was the chairman of the South Australian Legislative Council at the time. Now, Smith was a bit uncomfortable about this and he got out of town because he feared for his life and his family because Kingston was such an irascible character. And... Richard Baker gave approval for Joseph Henry Smith to have a month's leave of absence and he went off to Victoria where he had some friends. Now, Kingston was ropeable about this. And can you be with me for a minute, Jeremy? I'm just going to get the back, the back cover of, of one book? of my books. Yeah. Here it is. And I'm going to read this out to York. I'm going to read this out because this is unique in the history of Australian politics, I think, and it gives us an insight into Kingston's psyche. And it's a piece from the, the newspaper, The Register, that was actually on Christmas Eve in 19, sorry, 1891, and it's entitled Mr Kingston's Letter. Mr Kingston's letter to Mr Baker was to the effect that the government had granted Mr Smith, the chairman of the Railways Commissioners, one month's leave of absence. Mr Kingston had been frustrated in all his efforts to vindicate his honour, and that as he had thus been prevented from refuting the malignant charges made by Mr Baker against him, he would either shoot Mr Baker or be shot by him. He required Mr Baker to meet him at half past one o'clock in Victoria Square opposite Mr Baker's office, had he stated that in order to terminate the differences between them, he had enclosed a loaded revolver and cartridges and would be in the square at the appointed hour, prepared with a similar weapon and would wait until Mr Baker made his appearances. If Mr Baker, this letter proceeded, was a man of honour and courage, he would not refuse to be present in the square at half past one o'clock. The whole tenor of this letter exhibited signs of great mental excitement. Now that was when... Kingston was Attorney-General. He was subsequently charged and held by the court to maintain the peace for 12 months. And within that 12 months, he was able to form government and became Premier of South Australia. It's an amazing little piece of history, isn't it? Yes. Um, and it's, it, just, you know, it just shows, although certainly not advocating or, or expecting any, any sort of violence as such like you know, was advocated there, but... Um, it's it, you know people are so passionate about things and and when the vested interests are challenged, um, then you know that they will respond, uh, and that's again something that you know we need to really learn from history. As this story has you know taught us, you know we're our five drivers, you know technology, you know we talked about the the impact uh, that the steam engine had on society. It just cannot be. Uh, underestimated you know rail transportation changed society it changed commerce and it changed our economies forever the infrastructure that was developed um, you know through the rail era you know from the uh, tracks and bridges the crossovers uh, let alone the uh, the flow-on effects that occurs you know with regards to the rail towns and you know farming communities or even just the farmers being able to actually um, you know 
farm or, 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 or sow seed in, you know, marginal lands where they're able to move their, um, their produce, you know, the population, you know, we had the, the stories, um, uh, you know, of Tarawi, you know, it's a, it's a place of barren dirt and the badlands that turns into a thriving, um, you know, t- uh, rail town, um, you know, the impact that that has. And then, of course, you know, as technology changes, the, the rail town disappears and, and consequently so, do the, so does the population. Um, you know, the disputed lands itself between, you know, at Serviston, between South Australia and Victoria, is an amazing example and a really vivid example of the impact that, you know, government can have. Um, and what happens when, you know, control or ownership of land or other assets is uncertain about how investors and, and we as humans will react. And, of course, all of this has been under cred- un- underpinned by, um, you know, credit that has been extended to farmers to buy land, um, for the railway services themselves, and of course the expansion that uh, happens in those rail towns. So, John, it's been a really interesting discussion, and as I said, you know, it's a great example historically um, of our drivers uh, and the impact that it has. That you know, there's a lot of lessons that we can uh, we can draw on from that. So, I, I thank you very much, you know, for joining me today. Thank you, Jeremy, and I look forward to. Meeting you again, and I'm sure there's more that we can cook up in the next few months if you again. Oh, absolutely. And uh, John, uh, Clare Valley, uh, what's the name of the vineyard again? The Wilson Vineyard. Go and have a look. Look up the label, the Wilson Vineyard. We'll, of course, put John's contact details uh, in the show notes uh, that you'll be able to click below. And, of course, uh, contacts to the uh, to, to the vineyard there that you should definitely check out. I've really enjoyed this episode, and thanks again for joining me, John. Um, as for you know, for our listeners, you know, please get in touch with your feedback. You know, we love to hear your questions. Um, love to uh, to hear your property stories. You know, whether you're a first home buyer or experienced investor, you know, we do enjoy you know helping out um, where we can. Don't forget to uh, look us up on social media. Of course, Pathopod is the handle, so P A F O P O D. Pafo is, of course, the acronym for Property Australia's favourite obsession. Thanks for joining me. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and tell all your friends about us. I've been your host, Jeremy Cowan, and you've been listening to Property Australia's favourite obsession. And until next time, John, let's keep obsessing about property and maybe some trains. Terrific. Thank you, Jeremy. Any opinions or recommendations expressed should be considered general in nature, as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. You should therefore consider these matters yourself before deciding whether the advice is appropriate to you and if you should act upon it. Should advice be sought, please seek an appropriately qualified advisor. Investing may not be appropriate for everyone, as there is inherent risk and the possibility of loss when investing in financial assets, just as there is the possibility of profits. While useful for identifying patterns, history and past performance do not guarantee future performance. Calvin Flack has a commercial relationship with guests appearing on this production.